I'd like for you to take the word of God and turn to 2 Corinthians. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you may have noticed that Josh wasn't leading singing this morning. That's because he and Nikki are under the weather. So pray for Josh and Nikki, if you will. I'd like for us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 3. It's a simple message this morning. It's titled, The Simplicity That Is in Christ. I've become increasingly aware over the years that our, our culture is a post-Christian culture. And that's sad. It is because I grew up in a, in a Christian culture where most people in America had a, a fundamental foundational understanding of the Bible, of things in the Bible. I grew up in a, in a culture like that, but we're far from that now. Um, and in a way, I sorrow in my heart, but I, I also know that there's never been a greater time to be a Christian. Uh, never been a, a greater time to let our light shine than there is now. And never been a greater time to let our influence be known. Never been a greater time to stand. And having done all to stand. You know, there's never been a greater time. I hope, you, I hope you believe that like I believe it in my heart. There's never been a greater time in, in our generations to be a Christian, ever, ever. But I've become increasingly aware that as we've gone through uh, this metamorphosis of sorts that, uh, you know, we've talked about in the past that people don't know what the church is. Now, they've heard for years what the church is not. The church is not. The church is not. I became very concerned because as I listened to the same preachers say what the church was not or the same Christians say what the church was not, I became increasingly concerned that they didn't know what the church was. And so I came from a different perspective, a different voice, a clarion voice that would stand up and say, this is what the Bible says the church is. I became concerned about that. I also have become concerned that uh, people no longer know what the, what the pastor is. They don't understand what that is. They don't understand the, uh, the church leadership. They don't understand what a, what a pastor's job is. And uh, so I think I've talked a little bit about that. And, and more recently I've become concerned that people don't even know what the gospel is. They don't understand what it is. People think that the gospel is a message of a social reform. People think the gospel is going out and feeding hungry people. People think the gospel is, is uh, doing this thing or doing that thing. Or, or maybe we could just kind of encapsulate it all by saying some people think the gospel is making the world a better place. And friend, I, I don't know. If this will make sense to you right now, I hope that it does over time. I hope that God will open your understanding and bring you to the same conclusion that he's brought me to, that Jesus didn't come into the world to make the world a better place. Jesus came into the world to save that which was lost, to make eternity a better place. <laughs> Anybody who has become surprised that the world is waxing worse and worse hasn't been reading their Bible. That's the way it's supposed to be. And never a greater time. 
for those of, uh, those of us who have trusted in Christ. And, and so you may sense a, maybe a pattern over the next few weeks as the Lord leads me. I try not to, you know, try not to think, overthink these things too much, but you may see that I'm describing what the gospel is again over the next few weeks. And that's not so that I can only be heard, but it's for you to take and for you to repeat to others, for you to understand it and, and, and see what it is, what the gospel is. I'm burdened about this, and we'll talk about that this morning, the gospel and the simplicity that is in Christ. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 3, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, as we look to you by faith. Lord, help me. <laughs> Lord, help me. Help me know what I should say, what I shouldn't say. Jesus' name, amen. You know, the inevitable hour is coming when every one of us uh, will leave time and enter into eternity. For it is appointed unto man once to die, right? That's what the Bible says, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. The question is, how does, how does somebody prepare for the day when we say goodbye to everything that we've ever known and face God? I think it's safe to say that it, there's probably a universal desire that that encounter be a good one. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I don't care what you believe this morning. Uh, I, I do care what you believe, but I don't care what you believe. I think it's a universal desire that, that that encounter for everybody on the face of the earth, that encounter before God, before the Creator, everybody wants it to be a good one. Um, those who don't believe that there is a God, they're in for a rude awakening, I guess. Uh, you know, the Bible says, for it is written, uh, Paul's quoting, under the divine inspiration of God, the book of Isaiah, Verse 45 in Romans 14. As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. It's going to happen. And those that don't believe in the existence of God, they're probably in for a rude awakening, more so than probably they are. So how do we prepare for a day when we're going to face God? And I think that our text in 2 Corinthians communicates something that helps to simplify the answer to this question because 2 Corinthians 11.3 states the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, I want you to think of that statement. I want you to write it down on the table of your heart. I want you to internalize that, that phrase, the simplicity that is in Christ. And I want you to do that against the backdrop of all the Christian literature that has ever been written multitudes of Bible commentaries and books, hundreds of years of theological writings, and yet Paul boils it down to the simplicity that is in Christ. How could the Apostle Paul speak of our Lord in those terms, in his simplicity? His simplicity, and that's, that's the goal today, to, to push aside everything else and just see the simplicity that is in Christ. The answer to that question is that the gospel message is a simple message. The gospel message is a simple message. First Corinthians chapter 15, I know this is a 
be a familiar passage to you, but here's the simple message of the gospel as we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians, look at verse 3. First of all, for I delivered unto you, uh, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So there it is. That's the simple message of the gospel. Let me say it again, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. It is the simple answer. That is the simple answer of how we prepare to face God. And the simple answer is simply this, the simplicity that is in Christ. The simple answer, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we prepare uh, to face God. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is Christ. When a man preaches the gospel, what is it that he preaches? He preaches Christ, right? When we send out a missionary uh, out of a church, uh, what does that missionary preach to, uh, to where they go? They preach Christ, don't they? Um, uh, God became a man without ceasing to be God. Uh, he lived our life when he lived it without sin. He died our death. He was raised for our justification and is someday coming again for those who have placed their faith in him alone for a relationship with God and a home in his presence for eternity. And so when we witness and share the gospel with our family and our friends and our associates and our neighbors and, and even strangers, what is it that we preach? We preach Christ. Christ. Christ is the gospel. So notice with me, first of all, the simplicity that is in Christ and that is simply this, Jesus, Jesus. Uh, the great plan of salvation is a simple plan. Um, for example, uh, John 3.16, there's a whole outline. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The first point in that outline might be, uh, what is the source of God's love for God? God is the source of his love. We learned in Sunday school that God is love, right? We also learned this in Sunday school that, that God's love never outshines his light. That God is righteousness. And that because God is righteousness, he cannot allow sin into his presence. And, and though God so loved the world, he can't allow sin into his presence. But from, from, from the foundation of the world, we know that, that he gave his only begotten son. We know that that is that is love was shown in that he gave the Lord Jesus Christ. But the scope of God's love is himself. God is love. This, uh, I'm sorry, the source of God's love is himself. The scope of God's love is the whole world. Right? For God so loved the world, didn't he? Doesn't matter what country you come from. Doesn't matter what language you speak. Doesn't matter how much money you have or how much money you don't have. Doesn't matter what color your skin is. Doesn't matter uh, what your edu educational background is. It doesn't even matter where you've gone to church all of your life. God so loved the world. That's the scope of his love. He loves the world. And then we see this, the sum of God's love. John 3, 16, he, God so loved the world that he gave, right? That's the sum of God's love, that he gave his only begotten so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, and so we, I mentioned a moment ago that God's love never outshines his light. Here's, here's the difficulty. 
mankind in his sin cannot go into the presence of God. So God had to make a provision for that to happen. That's why he gave his only begotten son. That's why Jesus Christ came to this earth, why God came to this earth into the, in the flesh and, and lived our life and, and died our death and took our sin upon himself so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We're talking about the simple gospel. We're talking about the simple truth of Christ. Here's a, a wonderful thought. If we were to go through the entire Bible and underscore all of the passages where God tells us how to be saved and then go back and review them, you know what we would find? We'd find something quite amazing. Every passage where God tells a person how to be saved is communicated in one sentence. Every time. Let me show you a few examples of this. You can write these down and go check it out later. Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. One sentence. One sentence. John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. One sentence. John 1.13, uh, uh, I'm sorry, John 3.14 and 15. Two verses, one sentence. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Two verses, one sentence. One sentence. John 3.16 is one sentence. Check it out. The punctuation, one sentence. John 5.24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but has passed from death unto life. One sentence. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. One sentence. Romans 10.9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. One sentence. <laughs> Romans 10.10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. One sentence. Every time that we encounter in the word of God, God telling a person how they can be saved, it is done in one sentence. The simplicity that is in Christ. I don't know of a single exception to that. Always just one sentence. Now somebody might be thinking, and I've heard people say this to me and heard them say it to others, is, is uh, salvation really that simple? It can't be that easy. It can't be that easy. Well, that brings me to the second point. The simplicity that is in Christ is easy for us, but not for him. You see, he took our sins. He became sin for us. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. See, it was simple for us, but it wasn't simple for him. He bore our iniquities, Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Think about that. The simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of salvation, yeah, it's simple for us. But it cost somebody something, didn't it? 
cost him something. It cost him everything. It cost him everything. The simplicity that is in Christ, easy for us, but not for him. Thirdly, the simplicity that is in Christ, the, the great act of conversion is a simple act. Now, now, to wrap our minds around it, that's a different story. How that God can enter the human life. You know, the, how a God that's big enough to create the universe, to speak it into existence, is small enough to fit inside our heart. But the great act of conversion is really a simple, a simple act. Um, let me tell you about it in my life. Let me tell you the gospel within the framework of my personal experience. I was saved on September 16th, 1979. I realized that I was a sinner. I had been taught that all my life. By the way, uh, faith is really three parts. Faith is knowledge. Faith is conviction and faith is trust. And, and so uh, I had a bunch of knowledge that was in my head uh, from really two weeks after I was born, I think the first time I was in church. Of course, back in those days when a, when a mother had a baby, they'd stay home for a couple of weeks and, you know, and it was different than it is now. Now they want you to up and walk in the same day. You know, it's just different. It's like that was surgery too. And in those days, so it was a couple of weeks and I attended as an infant, I don't remember it, uh, the wealthy Street Baptist Church, Dr. David Otis Fuller was the pastor of that church. St strange side note, he was a hard, diehard King James preacher. Now, I don't know if that had any influence on my life or not at that stage of my life, but just, just an interesting thing. He's quite a preacher. He's quite a preacher. Um, if you can get a hold of any of his sermons, you'd, you'd benefit from them. But I was in church all my life. I, I grew up uh, in the Sunday schools and special programs of the church. I was much like my grandchildren, who every time the church doors are open, we were in church. My dad was not a preacher. Uh, we had preachers in our family, but we were in church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday evening. Had a head full of knowledge, but that knowledge... All those chickens came home to roost on September 16, 1979 when I, when I agreed, when I assented to what God's Word said. See, that knowledge somehow filtered its way down to my heart, and I said, yes, I'm a sinner. <laughs> yes, there's a payment that needs to be made for sin. Yes, Jesus paid for my sin, and so, yes, I believe what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus, and I receive it. See, that was knowledge, that was conviction, and that was commitment, trust. I, I committed trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, September 16, 1979. Really a fairly simple thing, a simple act of conversion. And I can remember this. It was as if the whole world was lifted off my nine-year-old shoulders. As far as I was concerned, I was a wicked sinner condemned to hell. Because the Bible had said that about me, and I agreed with it. I assented to that, and, and I was convicted about that, and I said yes to Christ. Best way that a nine-year-old knows how to say yes. That's the simple act of conversion. A little child can do it. A young child. How much evil can a nine-year-old really do? I've been around the block a few times, like literally. That was about it. You know? I was nine years old. 
I struggled with that, by the way, for those of you who might have been saved at an early age. Say, my testimony isn't a very strong one. Listen, we've got to get over that. The fact is, at nine years old, I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but Christ made me alive. That's the miracle of salvation. That's the miracle of, of conversion. And so really what I'm trying to communicate is, is simply this, that, that the great act of conversion is a simple act. I place my faith and trust in Christ alone as my only hope of relationship with God and a home in His presence for eternity. What's your story? What's your story? Tell the gospel as it is in the Word of God, as it is in the Scriptures, but put it in the framework of your own experience. But let me go on and, and say this, that the only thing, your testimony is a powerful tool. People love to hear stories. I love when I meet somebody, I say, tell me about how you got saved. I love to hear the story about how people got saved. It helps me to know, you know, where they are spiritually sometimes. So I love to hear those stories. People love to hear a story. They're going to love to hear your story. It's going to mean so much more to them when they hear how God converted you. Because they know you. Even if you just met them, it's going to mean something to them that some kind person was changed like that. So your testimony is one of the most powerful things you have in your witness. But the one thing that is more powerful than your testimony is the gospel. The gospel. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It's universal in its scope, but it's limited to everyone that believeth. You know that? It's, it's open to everyone, but it's limited in its scope, and that it's to everyone that believeth. Everyone that believeth. It's the power of God. It's more powerful than, than any testimony. How many of you have ever heard the broadcast Unshackled? I like listening to that. Every once in a while, I can... Uh, pick a radio, that radio program coming out of uh, the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, they tell these wonderful, amazing stories of uh, people being converted uh, by the gospel, you know. And they're, they're powerful witness, they're powerful testimony. But there's nothing more powerful in that story than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How that God became a man, lived uh, a life a sinless life, went to the cross, shed his blood, died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and is ascended to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God where he intercedes on our behalf to this moment and this time. That is the most powerful thing. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, is the power of God unto salvation. That word power is the Greek word dunamos, the same word, place we get our word dynamite from. I don't know about you, but I think dynamite has an intended purpose, don't you? I don't know if you knew this or not. Maybe you're learning something new about me, but I, when I first got out of the Navy, I went to work for M.J. Baxter Drilling and Blasting out of Lakeside, California. I was in between jobs, and, and so uh, what we would do is we'd blow things up. What a great job for a guy to have, right? We'd get out there early in the morning, and we would use a core drill, and we'd drill holes into the ground, and then we would take some blasting gel. It looked like a Oh, a package of cookie dough. You know how they have in the freezer section? It's uh, kind of twisted on both ends, and it's soft. That's what it's kind of like, cookie dough, like that. And you take it. I hope I'm not doing anything illegal by telling this. 
<laughs> but anyway, we'd take a blasting cap, and we'd attach that blasting cap to detonation cord. That detonation cord had, uh, I think it was tannerite coating on the inside, which is a gunpowder. And we'd take that blasting cap, and we'd stick it down into that, into that gel, that blasting gel, and we'd lower that blasting gel, that blasting cap attached to that detonation cord that was coated with tannerite down into the hole. And then we'd bring a bulk truck over, and that bulk truck had... Uh, ammonium nitrate in it with a certain percentage of diesel fuel. I won't tell you what the percentage was because that might get me into trouble. But it had a certain percentage of diesel fuel and, and we would uh, uh, empty uh, whatever uh, that uh, bulk truck had in it, we would empty into these holes that we had drilled with the gel and the blasting cap and the detonation cord. We'd fill them up and we'd put the, a cone in the top of it just to keep dirt from falling in on it. And then we would take all that detonation cord and we make the connections and we go back to the, the switch. And then at some point, uh, when all the holes were filled with the ammonium nitrate, diesel fuel, and the blasting caps, and the blasting gel, and the detonation cord was all run to back to the place, we would take and we would flip that switch. you say, fire in the hole, and boom! I mean, just huge explosion, controlled explosion, and, and it would go in, in, inside, goes boom, 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 and you see that rock go flying out and, and into the valley, and then the, uh, the, sometimes we would do it at a quarry, and the trucks would come in and scoop up the rock, but there was an intended purpose behind what we were doing. The intended purpose behind the power of the gospel is salvation. Some people uh, say that this whole book is the gospel. Well, this book contains the gospel. It has the gospel in it, but there's more than just the gospel. Now, the gospel is the, is the first thing that somebody needs to encounter when they, when they go into studying the Word of God. Otherwise, they're not going to understand anything else that's in the Word of God because the things that are in the Word of God are spiritually discerned. And the gospel has an intended purpose. It has dunamos, power. And its intended person, when it is applied is for salvation. That's the purpose of the gospel. It's the most powerful thing on the face of this earth. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes it. Now, I've heard all kinds of, of fantastic... We've talked about a moment ago about the Pacific Garden Mission, the, the Unshackled broadcast. I, as a teenager, I got to go sit in one of the recordings. It was really neat. They still all, did all the sound effects by hand. You know, if somebody was walking, they took a pair of shoes and, and they did all, it was just neat. Old-fashioned, they had a, the organ, you know, and uh, the suspenseful music. And, you know, on the edge of your seat is, is exciting. And I've heard all kinds of fantastic testimonies about salvation. But I've got to be honest with you. When I was saved, I didn't see an angel of light that led me to a confession of faith. I didn't see a fireball that uh, came down from heaven. Now, now I'm not dis saying that that's a bad thing. An angel of light that leads one to a profession of faith in Christ or a ball of fire that falls from heaven at one's conversion may be a part, may be a part, listen, might be a part of their conversion experience, but it must not be equated with it. See, that's not the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is. One day, we're all going to go into the presence of God for eternity and stand before a great judgment bar before Almighty God. I don't know what he's going to say. I don't know if he's going to say anything. I don't, 
I'm just trying to paint a picture here. One day we're going to stand before him and he's going to say, by what right to each and every one of us individually, by what right and by what prerogative and by what authority do you enter into my beautiful city and walk on my golden streets? My answer is going to be a simple answer. I said yes to Jesus. Simplicity that is in Christ. I didn't look within. I looked to Jesus. I didn't look at myself and say, well, you know, I hope my good outweighs my bad. I, I didn't look into myself. I didn't look introspectively and say, well, you know, uh, I was born into a Christian family. I didn't look within myself and say, well, I, I've been baptized. I've, I've, I've participated in all of the sacraments. I've gone to catechism. No, I, I'm not going to look within myself. You may be able to say anything about that. I'm going to have to say, I looked to Jesus and said yes. <laughs> That's the simplicity of the gospel. I was talking to my wife, and I, it, I don't know if it made sense to her, and I hope it. I'm going to be working on this to figure out how to communicate it better in the weeks to come. But I think sometimes as, as people who are faithful witnesses, we ask too often ask people to look inside. I think that's created a bunch of confusion in, ch in the churches. There's people alive today, and you might be one of them, who you don't know if you're ever sorry enough for your sin. You don't know. You don't know if you really meant it when you, when you prayed and asked Jesus to save you. It's because the perspective sometimes that we give, preachers from the pulpit do it too. Look in and examine your heart. And that is something that scripture, we ought to examine our hearts. But there's a couple of different ways to examine something. And as it pertains to this, uh, we can either look into our heart and say, was I sorry enough? Did I repent enough of my sin? We can look in introspectively or we can look extrospectively and say, look to Jesus and look at ourselves in the light of Christ and say, yeah, there's nothing I can do. Yes to Christ. That's it. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Well, let's be careful. Well, if you're listening this morning, watching this morning in the building this morning, and you're doubting your salvation, I don't know if I repented enough. I, I don't know if I've done enough good. Well, you know, I, I, you know, I was born into a Christian family, or, or I've, I've been baptized, and I'm, you know, I've done this and I've done that. Hey, I'm, stop looking at yourself. Look to Jesus. Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth and be saved. You know, that was Charles Haddon Spurgeon's testimony. He was 13 years old before he ever came to faith in Christ. Well, he knew all the doctrine. He grew up in a preacher's home. His dad was a preacher. His grandpa was a preacher. And he, he, he was a, a, a student of the Puritan writings. If you know anything about him, he, just scriptural writing, he understood what the Bible said, but he didn't understand how to be saved. Because he was always looking inside, always looking inside, until one wintry day when it was too uh, too snowy, too uh, too blustery to make it to his uh, to his regular church that he attended, he stopped in at a little primitive Methodist chapel, and it was such a rotten day that the preacher couldn't even make it to the meeting that morning, and so some uneducated deacon, he doesn't even remember the name of the preacher, got up and pre uh, preached from uh, as best he could from Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved, for I am God, and there is none else. And, and Spurgeon said it was like all at once. He finally looked away from himself and realized it wasn't about him. 
is about Christ. It was about the simplicity that is in Christ. You see, that is the simplicity that Paul speaks of in our text. Great conversion is, is a simple act. Believe, receive. Believe. That's, that's, that's an easy word. It's easy to misunderstand too. To believe something, you've got to, you've got to acquire some kind of base of knowledge. To believe something, you have to come to a conclusion of assent. I agree with what's, what's been said here. But it's not enough to agree with it. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to make a commitment to it. You've got to move upon it. See, there's acquisition, there's, there's assent, but then there's application. I've got to make this mine. Uh, and so we believe in the person of Christ. It's impossible to be saved outside of believing that Jesus is God in the flesh. You say, well, I don't know if I believe enough. Stop looking at yourself and start looking at God and his word and saying, okay, it says it. Yes, that's the simplicity that is in Christ. I don't know if, if I believe the word of God enough. Stop looking at yourself. Look unto Jesus. Look to the God of this book. And say, yes, if you said it, then I believe it. Extrospectively looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's a simple thing. As many as received him, the name gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That belief, that stuff that's in your head, it needs to move to your heart. And it moves your heart when you finally stop looking at yourself and you look to God and say, okay, if you said it, yes. I'm making it mine. You confess it to him, first of all. You're right, I'm wrong. Whatever you say, I believe it. I believe that Jesus paid for my sin debt. He, he lived my life and he died my death. And I really don't believe anybody knew that any better. Probably throughout all of, all of humanity, nobody's known that better than Barabbas. No, the one that was set free. I can't get that out of my mind. I mean, this thing was not done in a corner. Jesus was publicly abused, and I've got to believe that Barabbas was around somewhere going, that should have been me. Oh, may we all have that spirit when it comes to Christ and the simplicity that is in Christ to realize that should have been me. That should have been me. I want you to take an extrospective look. I'm going to give you an invitation. I'm not asking you to look within. I'm asking you to look without yourself. Look, look to Jesus. Look to God. His word this morning. Mrs. Knopf is going to play a hymn of invitation. It's 301. Only trust Him. What I'm inviting you to do this morning is is only trust Him. Look to Him. The simplicity that is in Christ. You might be here this morning and saying, well, I've already trusted in Christ as my Savior. This invitation isn't for me. It is for you. It is for you. Uh, God can take and use this in some other way in your life. However the Lord has spoken to you, don't look within. Look unto Him. L see God high and holy and lifted up. Right now during this invitation time, see him high and holy and lifted up. 
Examine yourself in that light. Don't, don't look within. Don't look to your problems. Don't look to your failings. Look to, look to Christ and, and look to the God of this book and let Him take care of it. See Him high and holy and lifted up. It'll change the way that you view everything else. If you've heard the message this morning, you've not yet trusted in Christ alone as your only hope of a relationship with God. It's that simple. It's that simple. You might be sitting and, and thinking to yourself, I don't know if I believe enough. I don't know if I understand enough. Stop looking at yourself. Look to Jesus. What did Isaiah say? Look and live. John chapter 3. John, under the divine inspiration of God, recorded what Jesus said concerning Moses and the serpent in the wilderness. You know, a lot of times I think we get this idea because we saw it in Sunday school that everybody could see the serpent on the pole. There was millions of people. It came out of Egypt. And quite practically speaking, that pole with that serpent on it that saved them from the fiery serpents once they'd been bitten probably could not have been seen by everybody. But if they just look, if they just look, if they could see it faintly, if they couldn't see it at all, and, and, and they were bitten by a serpent, they began to fall down and die, and, and somebody would tell them, look, look to the serpent and live. Same truth we find in Christ, look to Jesus and live. I can't see him. Yeah, well, look to him. Look his direction. Look extrospectively. Look unto Jesus. Be saved. Stop looking at yourself. God, help us to do that. Next few moments, let's just let the Lord work.